We're jumping into a new series today, and it's going to piggyback, piggyback off of the old one. It's not a lot of difference, but the title of the series is obviously Identity Crisis, and the, the reason we're going this direction, as I've been praying over the last couple of months, you know, as I, I set out and I begin to look, and a lot of times, sometimes I can map two or three, three of these things together, as I was coming out of the last one, and praying, Lord, where do we go next? It become more and more clear as I began to pray is that the church today has no identity. The body of Christ today has no identity. We know, are known for the things that we stand against, and that's about where it ends. And the reason for that is because we are very reactive and not proactive. The church today has become the thermometer and no longer is the thermostat. The thermostat controls the temperature, but the thermometer just reacts to the temperature that's around it. And so when things begin to get a little warm, the church wakes up, gets overly excited, and gets loud. And then we get comfortable again. It should sound a little bit like the book of Judges, if you've ever read that. It should sound a lot like that. Because what would happen is the Israelites, and their covenant was dependent upon their obedience to the commandments. God said, if you'll do this, I'll bless you, and if you don't, I'll curse you, and you'll be underneath judgment of people and all this other stuff. And what would happen in the book of Judges is things were going really well. And they forget that God is the one that made that happen. And they begin to take that for granted. They begin to worship other gods and be doing stuff they weren't supposed to be doing. So God would send judgment, usually in the form of uh, people coming in and creating chaos and all of that stuff. And eventually the people would wake up, and they would cry out for repentance. And then God would raise up a judge or a redeemer amongst them the people would come through god would bring them through things would be good again for a while and then they begin to get complacent again it's just rinse and repeat rinse and repeat rinse and repeat this is where the shampoo companies came up with this concept somebody read the book of judges like we sell more shampoo if you do it twice you know they tell you that you got to wash your head if you have no hair right adam what they say nothing worse than a dull scalp got to be good and shiny. Buff that baby. That's right. That's why we don't put lights in here. It'd be too much. It'd be like a disco ball or something. <laughs> Things just took an interesting turn. But the thing is, guys, is as we begin to look at this, we're like, well, what is the church? And what is the body of Christ? And what is our responsibility? And what are we supposed to be doing? And we know a lot of what's, but we don't know a lot of why's and how's. We know what to do. We know that we're supposed to be doing something. But the why we do it and the how we execute upon it is sometimes lost on us. Because what Christianity has become today, at least in America, and that's the only one I can really base it off because it's the only one that we know. There are parts of the world that this is not true. But in America, church has become a social club of which Jesus is at the center, at least of conversation. The Bible is addressed at certain times. But it is up for interpretation. It's up to whatever feels good. You come in, you put in your time. Listen, I made my, my attendance nece uh, necessary. I did that. Did all the things I'm supposed to. Now I can go home and do whatever I want. And live life the way I'm so I want to do it. And the problem is, is that we have no idea what the idea of an identity is. You know, we've got identity politics. We've got people identifying whatever they want anymore. I mean, it's just it's all over the map. And so the question comes down is, what are we supposed to look at? So let's, let's look at this. What does the word identity mean? Well, here's the definition. The collective aspect 
of the set of characteristics by which a thing is definitively recognizable or known. The set of behavioral or personal characteristics by which an individual is recognizable as a member of a group. Or the quality or condition of being the same as something else. Now let's break this down a little bit. The collective aspect or characteristics by which something is definitively recognizable or known. Something that you look at that tells you what that thing is. So, as an example, and I've used this before, but if you walk up to a tree, how do you determine what that tree is? It's very simple. You look at the leaves and or the fruit that are growing off of it. If you've ever walked up to an avocado tree and said, I wonder if those are lemons, you're an idiot. They're not the same thing, right? It's very easy to pick them out. Very easy, at least if you've seen them once or twice. And then the second part of this is a behavior or personal characteristic by an individual is recognized as a member of a group. In other words, there's something about you that makes you stand out and you are one of them. We see this in politics, right? If you hold to a certain behavior or you wear a certain item, you are associated with this group. Or if you do the contrary, you're associated with that group. What do you do when you take a bunch of teenagers somewhere? Put them all in the same t-shirt. Why? They are. You know which ones belong to you, and you know which ones don't. So you don't accidentally leave one behind or bring a new one home with you. A long time with youth ministry, we've run into some of these issues before. Right? We're not looking for new members, but we don't want mom and dad mad because we left junior at Worlds of Fun. So there are things that we do that we associate, we recognize these groups. You know, what, do you guys ever see, uh, what was that movie, Grease? How did you know the guys? The leather coats. How did you know the girls? The pink jackets, right? What about the jets and the sharks? I don't know anything about that. I've never seen that. But, but I mean, you think about the bloods and the crypts. You've got red and blue. You can't wear certain colors or certain, because then you're associated with these things. These are all things that we see. And so when we look at the churches, what are the characteristics that set the church, the ecclesia, the assembly apart from anything else? And then we individually, as a body, the individual body of Christ, what separates us from anybody else? We have to begin to dissect this a little bit. And this is going to be introductory today. We're going to begin to look at this and, 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 and build upon this. But the thing that separates us ultimately is the love of God. There is nothing special in your character that makes you more loved by God. There's nothing. God's love exudes out of him not because he chooses to, because it is who he is. You see, the fruit of God is love. The essence of God is love. He can't help but love. But love is not what they try to tell you it is. Love is not this free-for-all, you do what you want, or anything like that. Love brings correction and rebuke when it needs to be brought. There's a reason there's a lot of Bible verses that says, God will smite thee. I had a friend of mine a while back told me it's a good thing that God didn't give you the keys to the smiter. There'd be a lot less people on this earth. And he's not wrong. You know, the thing is, is that we've got to begin to identify. You know, what you were telling this morning is you got a glimpse for just a moment of that love and compassion and that mercy. Like, and, and that's where we should live. It's taste to see that the Lord is good. You saw through the lens that God sees all of us. And that should move you so much, not you, but all of us. It's like, wait a minute, that's how God saw me. Like, 
I was that person that I'm kind of looking down my nose at. They're thinking, why do you act like that? I can't believe you're doing these things. How terrible of you. And that was me. But it was that love that God saw me through that brought me out of this. We forget that. We begin to take it for granted. Because we do not love people the way that God loved us. It's like God got us in. We're like, good, shut the door. We don't need any more people here. It's too much. Turn it into Black Friday. So when we talk about identity... There should be traits that are recognizable because who we are eventually will exude out. The question is, are we relating to God or are we relating to the world? Let me show you a couple of pictures here. We've got a couple of families up here. The guy on the left's name is Dennis, and then that's Chris and Shannon. Now, Dennis was known in, in the town, he, he, he was in Wichita actually. He was well known, an active member of his church, he was respecting the community. They talked about what a great neighbor he was. And how that he would, you know, if a tree blew down in the neighbor's yard, he'd be over there cutting it. Somebody go on vacation, he'd mow their grass. Just super nice guy. Everybody liked him. Same here. Chris and Shannon, like, great family. She was very active on social media. They were very successful. She had a business that was going. He worked in the uh, petroleum fields and doing different stuff like that. Um, obviously, two lovely young ladies, you know, growing up in the house and whatnot. And these were people that when you looked at them, it's like, man, look at these guys. This is exactly how we should be. Except... The guy on the left was the BTK killer, and the guy on the right murdered all the people that are in that picture. Some of you caught on to that. How many of you recognize those pictures? Yeah, I knew some of you did. I knew you did. You made me watch the documentary on the one. You know? Now, what happened? The character that they played eventually fell short. Something drove them. The identity of who they were and what the world perceived them as was not actually what they were. This guy killed tons and tons of people for decades. Finally got caught. When he got caught, they were all shocked. His, it says this, his neighbors and fellow church members were absolutely stunned and were unable to believe that this man who they knew for so long was the serial killer that had haunted this area for decades. Blown away. This one here got into a, an affair, and he killed his wife, and then killed the two little girls. And the little girls basically begged him to stop. The thing is, is like, what happened? What they were known for was not what they truly were. The church today is known for a lot of things. But is it truly what it should be? You see, when we talk about Jesus, the Jesus that we worship, the God of Scripture, and the Jesus that's mentioned in the news and by people and all of this other, are not the same one. You might use the same word, the same name, the same terminology, but that does not mean it is the same God. And so we have to get back and begin to look at this and say, okay, what should I look like? How should I talk? How should I interact with people? What are my responsibility? Not only who am I in Christ, but whose am I? And we have to begin to get this. People and things are measured by characteristics. You guys hear about these presuppositions that people make? You know, they're all, oh, they always do this, they always act this way, whatever. Girls are more sensitive, boys are more tough. Is that always true? No. You ever seen a boy cry? 
If you haven't, I'll get my son and I'll show you. Okay? We have these characteristics. See, there's a blueprint that God has set out inside of us, a DNA. It's a marker. It's a characteristic. If you have a fingerprint, then yours is unique. Nobody else has one just like it. We are separated from the rest of the world with our DNA, with our fingerprints. Everything about us is extremely unique. And the thing is, is when we come to Christ, it's the exact same. And what we've tried to do is marry parts of the world and parts of God and blend them together so we can just be happy, go lucky, and do things the way we want. And yet the problem is, is God has standards. God has expectations. God has responsibilities for us. How arrogant do we have to be to get born again and not share that love that you experienced, that you glimpsed for just a moment and not share that with people? Not go out of our way and get uncomfortable and maybe it costs you something to do it. How arrogant do we have to be? How much can we possibly hate people to not share that? That's not how we would word it, but that's how it is. We use phrases and terminology that makes us feel good. So as we get into this, we're going to just open up Scripture a little bit today and begin to look at this identity that we're talking about. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a verse that y'all are familiar with. Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now let's break this down for a minute. Because there is a caveat to this. Do you know what it is? It is the word if. Newsflash, not everybody is in Christ. That means that there is a way that one gets in there. Fair enough? Because this is past Jesus dying and resurrecting all that. This is Paul talking. So it says, if you're in Christ, anyone, if you are, then what happens? You are a new creation. He did not take something old and clean it up and dust it off and slap a fresh coat of paint on it. He didn't do that. He made you brand new. The Greek word here is metamorphosis. It's the idea of a caterpillar to a butterfly. The caterpillar inside of the cocoon becomes essentially a ball of goo. It becomes a nothingness and is recreated as this whole new thing. I mean, think about this. If we didn't have textbooks telling us that caterpillars turn into butterflies, would you believe it if I told you? You're like, that ugly, little, furry, nasty thing that's crawling all over the place is going to become this pretty butterfly? Sure. I bet you saw that on Facebook, didn't you? We wouldn't believe it, but yet we've watched it, we've observed it, it's been happening forever. And so, that is the idea. What you were and what you are are not the same. You're a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. So let me ask you this. If that statement is true, then why are we living in our past? Why do we talk about all the pain that we suffered? Why do we talk about the things of the past as if they're still happening right now? We allow the torment and the trials and every bad thing that's ever happened to us affect the relationships that we have with individuals today, even including the relationship we have with God. What happened in the past is now gone because behold, you have become new. And what happens with new things? They work better. You trade in an old truck, you get a new truck, in theory... It's going to work better. That's theory. It hasn't panned out for me every time, but it's a theory. 
There's something about this idea that God has made me brand new. I am now justified before Him. It is no, my past is irrelevant. What has happened to me is irrelevant. I don't care what has gone on. I don't care who did what to me or what took place. That is not where I am. I will not allow it to dictate my future. But that's not the world we live in today, is it? The world we live in today loves the fact that we got all these problems. Well, you don't understand what I've been through. Well, guess what? God does, and He can take it away. I don't care. We make excuses. In John chapter 13, verse 31, we've read this before. So when He had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how, what was the associating factor of this group of people that would distinguish them from the other groups of people? It was the fact that they were doing what Jesus did. Their love for one another made them pursue the fact that they would be willing to lay down their lives for one another. We're going to get into some of the intricacies of this later on. The things that made Christianity Christianity. I don't know if you know this or not, but the term Christian is only in the New Testament three times. Twice in Acts, once in 1 Peter. And if you didn't know, now you do. It was not a term of endearment. People didn't walk around saying, I'm a Christian. That wasn't what they said. That's what we say. They were followers of the way. They were a sect of Judaism that found Messiah. They were following Jesus. And the reason Christianity or the word Christian got put out there is it was given to them by Nero because it was a derogatory term to separate like why they act the way they are. There was something about these people that made them stand out amongst the crowd and these guys hated it. Makes sense. Jesus said they hated me. They're going to hate you. But let's look at us today. Again, we'll dig into that deeper. But look at us today. What do we try to do? We try to blend in as to hope to not offend. Do we want to offend people? The answer to that is absolutely. We want to offend people with the truth because we love them so much. We don't want to offend them with how we present the truth, but we want to offend them with the truth. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. It says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. What did we just see? We are making a distinguishing mark between false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. Think of the two men that I showed you before. But inside, they were ravenous wolves. What they perceived themselves or put themselves out as was not truly who they were. But you'll know them by the works that they do, the fruit that they produce. Because a good tree can only bear good fruit. And a bad tree can only bear bad fruit. By their fruits, you will know them. I don't want to get sidetracked here 
But the thing is, is how do you notice bad versus good? You must judge them. Now, there's a problem. This is the judgment-free chapter. Judge not lest you be judged, verse 1. And Jesus just told us to judge. It's a shame that Jesus didn't know he wasn't supposed to judge. Somebody should have let him know. How dare we? You have to. You can't look at something good or bad and make a distinguishing fact unless you judge them. You have to. You make a million judgments a day. It might be a little strong, but you go down to get ice cream, you choose chocolate or you choose vanilla. You judged one of them. Get thee behind me. If you go to Krispy Kreme or Casey's, there's no comparison. That's right. There we go. I threw that in there to keep him awake. That's all it was for, okay? Let's look at another one. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you the opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are sound mind, it is for you, for the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, there's that word again, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know them thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. What is he talking about? It's not how you look. We judge you based on who you are. And who you are is a new creation in Christ. You are no longer what you were. Something has changed inside of you. You see, that is what we have to begin to understand. That is what we have to begin to dig into and say, okay, wait a minute. If this is who he says I am, then why do I act like this? Why do I sound like the rest of the world? Why do I look like them, smell like them, eat like them, do all the things that they do? Why am I not separated? Now, let's go just a little bit deeper here. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. It says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Can we all agree that we don't need to say the word circumcision for the rest of the month we got it all in we don't have to say it again there are times that we think Paul is a little schizophrenic and maybe has just lost his ever-loving mind and perhaps that's true but what is he talking about he's dealing with the Roman church and in order to be a Jew what did you have to do to be under covenant with God you had to become circumcised and we're not going to get all the details of that but we are going to go to the Old Testament to look at this but look what he's saying is circumcision profitable Yes, if you keep the law. But if you're physically circumcised, but you're breaking the commandments, does it matter? No. Because that is not the point. You see how much easier that was? We only use circumcision once. 
going to give Paul lessons when I get to heaven. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let's look at this broken down a little bit. Verse 12, And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I command you today for your good. Now let's pause for a minute. What are we dealing with in Deuteronomy? Moses, is, this, is, this is his last hurrah. His last teaching to the Israelites before he dies. They're going to go into the promised land after this. And he's kind of laying some stuff down for them. Don't forget what we did. Don't forget what we've been through. Don't forget what God has said. Don't forget the covenant. All of these things are in mind here. So what does God require of them? Fear the Lord. Walk in His ways. Love Him. Serve Him. With all your heart. Everything you got, that's what you do. Verse 14. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God. Also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Verse 16, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Do you know what therefore means? It's because of all of that I just said. Circumcise your heart, be stiff-necked no longer. He's getting at physically they had been obedient, but their heart was not there. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God. He uh, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. I mean, he is just kind of laying out, and it goes on and on and on. But what was his point? God has done this for you. And while physically you have met the requirements, your heart is not there. What was Paul talking about? You need to circumcise your heart. Going through the motions is not doing you any good. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 1, it says, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, that the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and called them to the mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. Remember, the blessing and cursing were part of this covenant. And you return to the Lord your God and obey His voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul. The Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So what is he telling them? He is laying out, here's what's going to happen. Y'all are going to do stupid stuff, and you're going to get driven out, but don't worry, God will bring you back. And when he does... He will circumcise your heart. In other words, the essence of who you are will drive the way you behave. Every single time. Eventually the truth will come out. Eventually you will stand up for what you believe, one way or the other. If you are moved passionately about any single thing, any political item as an example, that when somebody stands against that, you will boldly stand up and make your voice heard. When you are moved that this thing is so true and so right and you just don't understand and I've got to show you, you will do it. I have seen born-again believers who will passionately 
argue politics with people and not share that same passion with sharing the gospel with the individual. Because we'd rather win an argument than win a soul. You see, Moses here is telling them, you need to circumcise your heart. You're physically doing what you're supposed to do, but you're going through the motions. Look at Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So now who is Jesus dealing with here? Scribes and the Pharisees. Now let's just explain who these people are. The Pharisees were the sect that were in charge of the Sanhedrin during the times of Jesus. Remember, they were around Jesus because any time a messianic miracle would take place, that these guys would have to come and investigate. They were the only ones who could define and, and declare Jesus as Messiah or whoever Messiah would be. And so they were the legalists. They kept the commandments of the law, but the commandments were added that they kept at the time of Ezra after they came out of captivity. They called them fence laws. That way, in order to actually break the commandments of God, you had to jump over a number of fences to get there because you know what they didn't want? To end up in captivity again. So they were trying to keep all of that clear. So I'm sorry to repeat all of that, but I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. So he's dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 3, he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? That's what he is calling them out on. For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses, uh, he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So Jesus is laying it out there for him. It's awfully judgmental, don't you think? He called them hypocrites. Have you ever been called a hypocrite? I have. You know, I've had people tell me that they, won't, they don't want to go to church because there's too many hypocrites there. And you know what my response is? We always have room for one more. Come on. It's only hypocrites in the church that we're concerned with. We're not concerned about the hypocrites that go to the grocery store or the gas station or, or doctors or lawyers or run the McDonald's or whatever the case may be. But what truly is a hypocrite? Now, let me explain this because it's, it's misunderstood widely. We think hypocrite is you say one thing and do another, but that's actually way too simple because that's not what that means. Shakespeare would use this terminology often in his writings. This is how we really have drilled down to the meaning of these words, is that the hypocrite is one who is inwardly something but portrays himself as something else. And it would be as if they were wearing masks. Does that sound like anything that we read earlier? They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They're portraying themselves as something that they're truly not. That's not the idea of a truly born-again believer who has a bad day. Anybody ever had a bad day? Me neither. There's a difference there. But the reason that this belief is about hypocrite is we have not been consistent in our messaging. Our messaging are by the words we say and also the actions we take. So Jesus is getting on them. And he says, well, did Isaiah prophesy about you? Now understand who he's talking to. This is the leaders of Israel, the spiritual, religious leaders of Israel. And he calls them hypocrites. He says, these people draw near to me with their mouth 
and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 33 and let's look at this because it lays it out here. We know it says in Isaiah, we don't need to go read there because he just quoted it. Ezekiel chapter 33 says, As for you, this verse 30, Son of man, the children of the people are talking about you besides the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please come and hear the word, what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument, for they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. You see, he's talking to Ezekiel about prophesying. And yeah, they're there, and they hear the words you're telling, the warnings you're giving them, but they're not doing them. Here's the problem, and this is where we're going. The reason the church has an identity crisis today is because this is what we have done. We've come near to God with our lips. We talk a big game. We go to church. We go to service. We give money. We do all the things that we think we're supposed to do. We've never asked the question of why we do those things. Why do we meet on Sunday? Why do we go to church? Why do we give? Why do we do all of these things? We never ask those questions. But we do them. And then our heart doesn't match our mouth. And the problem is, is when you're truly born again, your essence is now the image of God. But somebody needs to alert the rest of you. Because we're not portraying that. We're not doing what Jesus did. Remember we talked about that teaching, healing, all of that? We're not doing that. We're looking at the moral aspect. Well, Jesus fed the hungry. Oh, well, let's do that. That's good. Not bad. But what about the rest of it? The reason that we can't recognize things today and we can't discern between good and evil the way that we should because we think good and evil as very nefarious on both sides. Good is super good and evil is super bad. But do you realize that, that it's not like you just get there all overnight. There's a number of steps to get to super bad. It's not like Hitler just showed up one day and said, hey, guess what? I'm the new guy in charge and I'm going to kill all the Jews. There was a series of steps that took place to get to that point and the next thing you know is like, whoa, what just happened? In Hebrews chapter 5, it lays it out, verse 12, it says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes of only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. How does one get to that point? By reason of use. When you simply attend a service, give, do the things, you're not exercising the God-given commandment that we are to be doing as His hands and feet on the earth. Therefore, you won't recognize those things when they come. The identity crisis we have today is in place because we have believed a lie. And sometimes that lie has been perpetuated by good people who had good intentions. But we don't have discernment in the church today. We don't have discernment as individuals. We believe anything people tell us. We are baby birds with our mouth open. If somebody as an authoritative figure has said it, it must be true. You guys remember the State Farm commercials? Bonjour. It was a French model. Nobody remember that? Am I the only one? 
Oh my goodness. All right, I'm going to show that next week. It's funny. The thing is, is that we, that is where we are. We never ask good questions and we've been taught not to because from the moment you get in school, you don't ask the whys and the hows, you just regurgitate the whats. And that has trickled into the church today. And we need to get past that because our identity is in Christ. If we are truly His hands and feet, then we've got some explaining to do of why Christ is so weak and pathetic. Amen? Anybody hate me? We're going to pray anyway. Father, we thank you for your word. And the opportunity that we have each and every week that we gather together. And I thank you that your spirit is moving in this place. That you are quickening our heart to be more like you. To understand who you are and what you've done. And continue to grow in our relationship with you and our knowledge of you. That we can be used by you. And that we may not take this time for granted. We won't take anything for granted, Lord. But each day is an opportunity and a gift from you. And we got work to do. And I thank you that you are waking us up to do the work that you have called us to do, to be your hands and feet on this earth, to be your mouthpiece, Lord, to go into all the world preaching the gospel, laying hands on the sick, and watching them recover. Lord, as we declare the truth of the gospel, the signs follow. And so, Lord, we just thank you for what you've done and continue to do in our lives, and that we are only getting started. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Guys, have a great week. We'll see you soon.